Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the ninth edition of the Walks Round Britain podcast, we go for a walk in Bournemouth with Karen Guttridge. We check out the new Buxton Adventure Festival and the Hay Walking Festival. And we make all this gear. I mean, I've seen it over a lifetime. All this gear is superbly made, but in general, it doesn't achieve that lifetime that it's made for. So it's my mission to ensure that it does. Sarah Howcroft tells us about ROG. Hello and welcome to the Walks Around Britain podcast. After the male-only edition last month, we've got an all-female affair this podcast. Well, apart from me, of course. Well, so let's start in the south of England and take a walk in Bournemouth with writer and blogger Karen Guttridge. For today's walk, I'm in Bournemouth and I'm sitting right now on the steps of a beach hut, so I'm sure you can probably hear the sound of the sea in the background. I'm overlooking the seven miles of sand which runs from Sandbanks in the west right through to Hengisbury Head towards the east and it's a beautifully clear day so I can see both of those points really clearly from my vantage point here. I'm going to be heading off today for a three mile walk into the chines of Bournemouth and Poole. Now a chine is a sort of deep wooded valley which runs down towards the sea and may or may not still contain a stream. It's a word that's peculiar, really, to the south coast, and in particular to Devon, Dorset, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. You might have heard of Blackgang Chine or Shanklin Chine on the Isle of Wight, where in Operation Pluto during the Second World War, a pipeline was laid from the Chine to run fuel under the sea right the way to Cherbourg. You can still see parts of the pipe today. The name Chine actually means a gap or a yawn, And I was thinking today what a fabulous name Branksome Yawn would be as an alternative. And just a few miles along the coast from here in Hampshire, the word chine, they use the word bunny. So there's a place called Chewton Bunny. Isn't that fantastic? So let's head off now into the tropical gardens, which is part of Alum Chine. So I'm going to turn away from the sea and head off up the hill. I'm walking through the tropical gardens right now and I have to say it's really well named. There are so many yuccas, palms and plants you just wouldn't expect to see in the UK that it's so easy to imagine yourself in sunnier climes. Having said that, when I'm walking along the coast in Bournemouth I do sometimes get a message on my phone saying welcome to France so uh, maybe I've strayed a little too far. One really interesting thing about Alum Chime is it's got this fabulous suspension bridge and it was built in 1903 for the huge cost of £480. But the fascinating thing is it's widely believed to be the spot where the 18-year-old Winston Churchill, when fooling around with friends, he jumped from the bridge to try and catch the branches of a nearby pine tree and missed, tumbling 30 feet down to the ground. Now, I'm standing on this bridge now and there are pine trees next to it, and it does look about 30 feet down to the ground, so maybe this is the spot. He did spend three days unconscious in hospital, and fortunately, as we know, recovered, 
but imagine how history could have been so different. I've made a slight detour out of Alan Chine Gardens now, just to visit the site of what was the house of Robert Louis Stevenson, and it was here that he wrote Kidnapped and The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. You can probably hear some traffic noise in the background. It's quite busy today, as being such a sunny day, lots of folks are heading off to the beach. A few hundred metres past the uh, site of the house of Robert Louis Stevenson is the Welcome to Pool sign. So I've just crossed over the border and entered Branksome Park Woods. This is going to lead me down to Branksome Chime and back down to the sea. Branksome Park Woods is definitely the sort of place I'd love to have played as a child. It's got lots and lots of trees, plenty of places to make dens and as you can probably hear, lots and lots of waterfalls. It's absolutely perfect, very peaceful. And it's quite odd to think that um, this stream and I are now slowly making our way down to the sea. And in a minute I'll be turning the corner, passing into Branksham Chime and then coming upon a beach full of sandcastles with ice cream stalls and surfboards. Quite a strange thought really. I've now reached the promenade again and walking along the seafront on Branksham Chime Promenade. Uh, the wind has whipped up just a little and you can probably hear the sea responding. But what I'm looking at, I'm looking up into the cliffs to my left and you can really clearly see the varves. These are layers of sediment that are laid down in one season, in one year and usually there's a light band and a dark band and here you can see them really, really well. And for a perfect end to a seaside walk, you just can't beat some sizzling sausages in the beach hut. I think the British have always loved their beach huts, but they do seem to have become increasingly desirable as time goes on. Anyone cooking up a beach hut feast is guaranteed an audience from passers-by. I like to think it's my natural charm that draws them in, whereas I know full well it's the drawer of my beach hut bangers. And you can follow Karen's travels on her Facebook, Twitter and blog. And to find those links just visit the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog, which you can find by clicking through from our website, walksaroundbutton.co.uk. October tends to be a rather hectic month for outdoor activities. I suppose it's the last month of regularly respectable weather here in Button, so we've got two events to mention in October. In a while, we'll discuss the Hay Walking Festival, but first, Lisa Cook joins me on the line from deepest, darkest Derbyshire to talk about the new Buxton Adventure Festival. Lisa, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Tell us about the festival. Well, it's a, a new two-day festival. We've got um, ten, the, it's a bit of a different concept. We've done the Sheffield Adventure Film Festival. Matt's now done that for seven years. So this is a, a new concept where we'll have ten speakers, uh, two-hour sessions, and in each um, session, will each speaker session will also include um, two or three uh, short films as well. So the focus is very much on the speakers. So five speakers uh, each day across across the weekend. And the films in the festival are coming from the topics that the speakers are talking about. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, for example, uh, I'm just looking now at the programme and uh, where we've got John Beatty, who is a, a really internationally renowned photographer who lives here in uh, yes. Bamford in the, yeah, in the Peak District. Uh, his his talk's going to be followed by um, Iridium, which is an amazing time-lapse sequence. It's a short eight-minute film, but just incredible. And then um, The Dark Side of the Lens, which is actually about surfing, but it's really beautifully written with an essay, which re- very much reflects, you know, John's ethos. His, his, his book, Wild Vision, isn't just about 
photos it's also essays on on the nature of uh, of photography so yeah every all the films fit with uh, with the speakers Buxton is a really great place for this kind of festival isn't it yeah, we're hoping so, and we're really hoping that um, people embrace it. I think the reason we wanted to do this at Buxton is because, you know, the, the town has a, a big culture, a very strong culture of uh, speakers with the, the Buxton Opera House. Matt's organised quite a, a, a lot of talks over the years there with the likes of, you know, Sir Arnold Fines and, and the climber Leo Holding, uh, which are always um, very popular. Uh, so we're, we're using the brand new venue behind the, the slightly smaller um, Pavilion Arts Centre, as this is the the first year, and uh, we're hoping that you know people are very much used to that Buxton Festival culture. They're used to big speakers coming. You know, they've had um, the likes of uh, Sherry Blair and uh, Matthew Paris coming to talk for for years. So we're very much hoping that they'll embrace it. And Buxton is a fantastic place for the great outdoors and and the Peak District. Oh yeah, I mean Buxton's right in the heart of the uh, Peak District. It's it's enveloped by the the whole um, Peak District, and we've got you know some of the world's you know some of the world's best biking, some of the world's best climbing. I mean, you'll obviously know it's just incredible uh, walking uh, right on the doorstep. So uh, yeah, hopefully it's a it's a perfect fit. When are the dates, and how can we find out more information? It's the 20th and 21st of um, October, so uh, a month away now, and um, there's all the information you could want on the website, which is buxtonadventurefestival.co.uk, or you can just uh, have a look on also on the Buxton Opera House website, and the Opera House are selling tickets as well. Lisa, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, lovely to talk to you. Moving southwestwards, and the border town of Hayon Wye is hosting a walking festival this month. And joining me now is Anna Haywood from Drover's Holiday and Trish Dory from the Brecon Beacons National Park. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Anna, tell us about the Hay Walking Festival. Um, so we, we started the festival in, in 2011, um, really because obviously a lot of people already come to Hay on Wye as a, as a place for walking. Um, but we felt there was so much to offer in the area that um, there's lots of scope to, to bring more people into the area. Um, so we started with a modest three-day uh, walking festival last October um, and it went down very well um, so it's virgin this year into a five-day festival with getting on to 60 guided walks and events over the course of five days involving um, several dozen volunteer leaders from the local community um, to, to lead the walks and organise the programme. What range of walks are available? Well it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a cliche but something for everyone really with our approach so we've got everything from short two-mile walks around the town with looking at sort of the historic interest of, of Hay and Why. We've got foraging walks for children, which are very short and, and easy to do, um, right up to a 17-mile walk along the Herefordshire Trail, some walks going up onto the escarpment of the Black Mountain. So, you know, a, a real range through from people who've never walked before. Uh, we've got a healthy walk for beginners, for example, right up to people who are, you know, keen walkers and want a, a full day out in the mountains. We've, we've also managed to sneak in a few cycle rides this year as well, just to add a bit of variety. So um, there's, a, there's a real range there. Hey, really is a great place to base yourself for walking, isn't it? It is. I mean, we've got two long-distance paths, the Offersite National Trail and the Wye Valley Walk, which, which cross at Hay. And they obviously bring a lot of people through the town um, throughout the year. But as you say, a lot, a lot of people actually pass through without realising that you could, you, know, you could stay in Hay for two weeks and do not only a walk every day but quite a different kind of walk because we're on the border of um, the Brecon Beacons National Park, Herefordshire, Radnorshire, you know you've got a real variety of walking right on the doorstep so um, it's, it's a fantastic place and we've got a good uh, 
some good pubs as well, which is always essential if you're, if you're basing yourself somewhere <laughs> day. Definitely. It's always good to have a pub on the walk, isn't it, Trish? Yeah, most definitely. And and what we found is that you know mixing walks with food is a really good idea. That seems to go down very well. So so quite a few of the walks have got pubs or cafes linked to them some of which are even offering um, the walkers a special 10% discounts. That's an excellent idea. Yes. Now, lots of walkers like to use public transport, and the links are, are quite good to get into the town. Hailmai is probably one of the better situated places in the National Park because of its links to Hereford train station and the local bus service from Hereford is reasonably good. Yes. So in terms of public transport links, Hay is reasonably well positioned. So, I mean, you know, it'd be great if a few people could make it um, to Hang on Wide by public transport, but I suspect the great majority will probably arrive by car. <laughs> but at least, at least whilst they're there, they'll be they'll get out of their cars and they'll and they'll see a lot of the countryside and, and do a lot of it by on foot or or by pedal. One of the walks actually specifically uses public transport because, um, as Trish mentioned, there's a daily bus service between Hereford and Brecon. So, the walk I'm leading actually, um, we're taking the bus from Hay out. Dawson um, and then walking back to Hay so it would be a long walk to do as a circular walk but by using the bus it, it cuts it down to a 99 miles so it's um it fits in well and obviously that's a walk that people visiting Hay could do at any time of the year. Last year we, we did the same walk and a number of local people came from Hay itself and said you know I'd never have thought to do this walk but now that I know and I've done it with a guide I'd be quite happy to get the bus out on a Sunday have, have some lunch and walk back to Hay. So, you know, that's a really nice thing that it's getting some, some local residents in Hay out walking as well, sort of realising it's on the doorstep that they hadn't perhaps noticed before. So tell us about some of the guides for the festival. Well, they're as, as varied as the walks themselves, really. We've got um, everything from uh, international mountain guides, you know, very qualified people who, um, you know, professional um, leaders who, you know, very generously given their time and their expertise right through to, to people who, you know, just enjoy walking and they've, they've used the, the walking festival as, as a way to sort of improve their skills in that area. They, they may not have led many walks before, but we're offering some free first aid training and advice with sort of preparing route cards and, and the kinds of things to, you know, to be aware of when you're leading the group. So it's, it's a real range and we've got some... Uh, got some local characters we've got um, an, so we <laughs> an archaeology walk that uh, is happening which is um, a local guy who's an absolute font of knowledge about um, local archaeology um, we've got another um, a history walk around Pale Mai that is um, being led by a, a, a bearded local character Rob Soldat <laughs> um, and yeah we've, we've got um, any anyone and everyone really is, is welcome to come on board as a, as a leader when does the festival run and how can we find out more information? Um, so the festival kicks off on the um, 11th of October and runs through to the 15th. Um, we've got a, a website which is haywalking.org. Um, that's got all the information about the walks on there. They're bookable online and you can you know, find out information about the, the distance of the walk, the grading, whether or not you can bring your dog, that kind of thing. There's a brief summary of the walk. And anyone wanting more information, um, there's also a telephone number that, that they can call, uh, which is 01497 821 134, um, just for any sort of uh, queries that aren't covered by the information on the website. Yeah, everything is, is on there, really. Trish, what's the National it's, Park's involvement in the festival? This whole Hay Walking Festival initiative is very much the baby of the Hay Tourism Group, and it's very much down to their enthusiasm and their efforts as a voluntary group to get this off the ground. 
But the role of the National Park Authority has been very much a supporting role in terms of being able to supply a little bit of funding to help the walking festival, especially in terms of promotion of what they're doing. And the National Park Authority is involved in a partnership called the Office Country Partnership and the Walking with Offer project, which which is helping Hay on Wai deliver this walking festival through the country, but hopefully also helping Hay on Wai to achieve walk as a welcome status, which which again will hopefully raise the profile of the town in, in terms of its profile as a walking destination, as well as its obvious reputation as a book town. The, the funding is coming from the Rural Development Plan for Wales, um, which is supported by the Welsh Government, and the European Agricultural Fund for Rural Development, and match funding from the National Park Authority itself in terms of staff time and money. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? It certainly is! <laughs> Not <laughs> I'm glad you had to say that and not me. Thanks for coming on the podcast, you two, and, and the best of luck for the festival. I hope you can come. I'd love to. <laughs> if Thanks. the roads aren't flooded. <laughs> I hope there won't be. <laughs> you can find out more information about the Haywalking Festival and the Buxton Adventure Festival on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. <laughs> Now, 40 years ago, the outdoors world looked very different in Britain. Many of the brands we know today didn't exist, and clothing looked a world away to what we recognise now. One of the companies which pioneered serious but wearable outdoor clothing was Rowan, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. And the co-founder of Rowan, Sarah Howcroft, joins me now. Sarah, hello there. Hi there, how are you? I'm fine, thanks for coming on the podcast. So how did Rowan come about being born in 1972? Well, many, many, many years ago, way back in the uh, very early 70s, 1970s, myself and my late husband, Paul Howcroft, um, obviously we were really, really young then and very, very keen on walking and climbing and both came from um, a background where we wanted to do something ourselves. So at some point we made the leap that um, what we needed to do was make climbing and walking gear better and that's what we decided to do. This to start with, the one thing you have to have is a passion. That's starting any small business. And obviously it was a very, it was very, very much a small business. And then it develops from there. So driven by the passion and the passion was to make really, really good gear that was very innovative and, you know, forward looking. And bit by bit, you, you, you put together, it's like a huge jigsaw, I guess, over a number of years. But we started making the garments ourselves, experimenting, trying different fabrics, different ways of doing things, that sort of thing. So very, very experimental in the first few years. And I think that put the, the groundwork down for the many years that were to come, really. It really must be tricky designing fabrics, as you don't want to let the rain and the cold get inside but you also need to let the sweat seep out. So it, it must be a difficult balance. Yes, it is. I mean, it's even today, with all the high-tech membranes, coatings available to us, it still is a balance, depending on an awful lot of things. But um, way back then, it, it, the, the arguments were different, actually. I think that it, the assumption was you were probably going to get wet in the outdoors. It was a case of how you could ensure comfort and safety while you were wet, rather more... Yes, that's changed, hasn't it? There seems to be an atmosphere yeah. now that if it's raining, we have to be dry. And yes. that's relatively new. Obviously, there is this expectation that we won't get wet because of the technical abilities of the kit today. And if you do get wet, the probability is it's coming from your own perspiration rather than through the garment. 
Um, and another element of Rowan clothing is that it doesn't look like outdoor gear, no, does it? Exactly. It's proper clothing. Yes, exactly. And one of the, the missions, if you like, in those very early years when Paul and myself were very much at the helm was to change the way people dressed. And that wasn't only in the hills and on the mountains. Our, our own mission then was to actually change the way we all dressed in the way we, we conducted our lives because our lives were changing so much with so much more travel activity, that sort of thing coming into our lives. Don't forget, this was in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, there, there was this whole feeling of life was changing and we're going to need an awful lot of pockets to put our stuff in to carry with us, etc., etc. And to a certain extent, that is still the case today. Well, it is the case today. Even more so with yeah. your phones, GPS units, maps, cameras. Correct. That's right, yeah. And if you take that back to those early days when we were making these garments for the high mountain, uh, well, the, the very quick mountaineers that were uh, going up, up these mountains very, very quickly that needed to carry everything with them, um, these pockets were absolutely vital. And when the bags came along, the Rowan bags, the trousers that are still made today, which sort of started the revolution in lightweight um lightweight garments, um, the positioning of those pockets was absolutely vital to carry as much as you can for as long as you can, as high as you can. And that really was the discipline behind Rowan bags all those years ago. You can always tell garments which have been designed in Britain because they've got pockets which are designed to fit OS maps in them as opposed to other countries' odd-shaped maps. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, those were the disciplines. I mean, if it didn't fit an OS map in those days, it, it wasn't a true outdoor garment, was it? It, it was something else. So, um, and those obviously disciplines remain still today. So tell us about your new project, Gift Your Gear. Yes, well, Gift Your Gear is a, an initiative from actually ROG, RecycleOutdoorGear.com, right. which is what I started probably about nine, ten months ago, still in its first year, which was an, an easy route for all this superb outdoor gear. And I'm not just talking about Rowan. I mean, all the outdoor gear that doesn't reach its full potential in its life to be used again by another party. Um, because obviously we make all this gear. I mean, I've seen it over a lifetime. All this gear is superbly made, but in general, certainly in the Western world, it doesn't achieve that lifetime that it's made for. So it's my mission to ensure that it does and to seek out new and different ways in which this gear can achieve its full life. Now, Gift Your Gear is an expression of that. So that is an initiative which is the first adopter is Rowan, whereby the Rowan customers can bring into a Rowan shop any item. This is clothing, trousers and jackets. They no longer require, need, wants. As long as it's reusable, the Rowan shop will relieve them of it and reward them with a discount at the moment. Now, that's not only Rowan gear, it's all brands. It's across the outdoor industry. And then what happens is all the gear is inspected, obviously, although the managers are very careful as to what they take back because it does have to be able to be reused again. And then Gift Your Gear has a large contact base now with community groups working in the great outdoors within the UK, whereby this gear is offered to them, as long as it is going to be used by people in the outdoors. So one of my greatest aims with all this is to take the traded nature out of this gear, because obviously there is that element to it as well. You know, some of this, some, not all of this gear has a value. 
Well, yes. my vision of its value is, is in its use by people that wouldn't have access to this kind of gear. And it gives them the experience of using really good gear in the outdoors, which I think is a fantastic building block for the future, not only for those people, but for the industry as well. Possibly we all finish with our outdoor gear well before it's come to the end of its life, really. Exactly. Well, I, I'm still using gear now, but I made 30 plus years ago. You know, if you've got that kind of uh, sustainability through longevity built into a garment, then it's absolutely mad to assume that that garment reaches the end of its useful life in two, three, four, five years. It's stupid. So, um, the, you know, this is an expression of that, that very thought, in fact, to make these garments available to communities that have no experience of using good gear is, is um, a good building block for the future, I think, for the industry as well. Indeed, we're really keen to get people out walking and climbing, but they've got to be wearing the right sort of gear, haven't they? And, and exactly. that gear still costs a lot of money. Exactly. And really good gear still does cost, by a proportion of anybody's income, quite a lot of money. So, yes, as you say, it's, it's a way of doing this. So how can we find out about Gift Your Gear? Um, well, Gift Your Gear uh, is on recycleoutdoorgear.com. There's uh, full details on it there. It's also on rowantime.com because obviously it's being run at the moment for the Rowan shops. So rowantime.com carries the story as well. And also it has been nominated for um, the Great Outdoors Awards. So Which is the end of October, isn't it? Correct, yes. So there's a group of various different categories in which the environmental category, ROG, has been um, nominated for that. So I'm really pleased about that, considering the fact that it is still quite new into the industry, but nevertheless expressing a, a really um, strong feeling and message. And? And Sarah Halcroft's been nominated as well for Outdoor Personality of the Year. There you go. <laughs> Congratulations on both those nominations and, and, and fingers crossed. No, no, I'm, you know, keep a very open mind on. I am very, very pleased from the point of view of ROG. I think that is absolutely great. It has been so well received across the industry, both by the people that participate in the great outdoors and the trade itself, which is lovely. I mean, it's united under the, hot, the same banner, which is fantastic. So I'm really And that doesn't always happen, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, it's. It is something that the whole trade can unite over, of something really, really genuine that is very practical. So, yes, I'm really pleased about that. Many thanks for talking to us and good luck for the awards. Thank you. And, of course, all the details for this edition of the podcast are on the show notes on our blog. Please keep in touch. You can tweet us, you can write us a post on Facebook, send us a voice message or use a good old-fashioned email. All our contact details are on our website, walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Until next month, thanks for listening and happy walking. <laughs>